All right, welcome back to the uh, final episode in our Tulip series on Creedal Catholic. Here I am joined by Casey Chalk once again as we wrap this up and talk about perseverance of the saints. This will not be the last time Casey's on the podcast, at least I hope not, Casey, but uh, for now, welcome back to Vernacular as we wrap this up. Thank you very much. Very good to be with you again. And uh, yeah, I've got lots of other ideas. So yeah, as long as you have me back. Hey, you're always welcome. Appreciate it. So today, Casey, we're going to talk about perseverance of the saints. And uh, before we hit record, I told you I was going to spit a little fire here. And by that, I just mean that when we were studying, when I was studying and researching for this podcast, I, I came to the conclusion that this is a doctrine that is really not well grounded in biblical theology at all. And so I'll make the claim here, Casey, that this is one that I, I really, frankly, don't understand the Protestant proof texts um, as proof texts per se. Uh, and I think that this is the weakest of each of the five points of TULIP. Would you agree with that, or do you have a different take? Um, I don't think I've thought about it enough to analyze them all. I think because of my uh, arguments regarding the perspicuity of Scripture, I, it, it makes me hesitant to, <laughs> to ever uh, make an argument that one position is radically less biblical, just because I, I get concerned about you know injecting Protestant premises into the Catholic paradigm and Catholic arguments, but I'm willing to at least hear you out on this. Yeah, fair enough. Well, let's let's do this. So I've got some thoughts on this doctrine and and how it fits into the kind of tulip ecosystem and the scriptural text. So let's get all get to all that. But before we do, I think it'd be helpful if we just define the doctrine as we've done before. So we have uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, John Piper and R.C. Sproul. I'll, I'll um, read what Piper and Sproul say about it. And then I'll let you uh, walk us through the Westminster Confession, and then we'll talk about it a, a little bit and um, and how there is really a sort of domino effect through each aspect of Tulip, I think, that that leads to, you know, ultimately has to be supported by this final one of perseverance of the saints. So John Piper says, we believe that all who are justified will win the fight of faith. They will persevere in faith and will not surrender finally to the enemy of their souls. This perseverance is the promise of the new covenant obtained by the blood of Christ and worked in us by God himself, yet not so as to diminish, but only to empower and encourage our vigilance. So that we may say in the end, I have fought the good fight, but it was not I, but the grace of God, which was with me. All right, so that's Piper. And he, he uh, cites 2 Timothy 4.7 and 1 Corinthians 15.10. R.C. Sproul says, true Christians can have radical and serious falls, but never total and final falls from grace. The old axiom in Reformed theology about the perseverance of the saints is this. If you have it, that is, if you have genuine faith and are in a state of saving grace, you will never lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. I prefer the term, here we go, changing the terms again on this R.C. Sproul. I prefer the term, the preservation of the saints, because the process by which we are kept in a state of grace is something that is accomplished by God. End quote. So that's Piper and Sproul for you. Casey, what does the Westminster Confession say? Sure. So the Westminster Divines say in chapter 17, section 1, They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called, and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. Um, so, and just to note, uh, following up on our previous podcasts, so one can see the logical flow here within the Calvinist paradigm. If God's grace can irresistibly overcome the will of a human person in order for that person to say yes to his calling as one of the elect, 
Um, that's what we saw with um, Irresistible Grace, uh, the last um, uh, Calvinist doctrine we covered. Then, uh, by extension, God can ensure that such persons also persevere until the end, right? Because, again, he's, he's basically able to overcome uh, the human will. Yeah, that's exactly right. I would, uh, I totally agree with you. I would say that, you know, even even more than that, even even more than the logical flow of if God can irresistibly overcome, then God can also preserve. That's certainly true. But I think we have to walk through like the whole tulip garden to understand <laughs> understand how we get to preservation or perseverance of the saints. Rather, I'm I'm, I'm adopting the uh, R.C. Sproul terminology here. <laughs> so pers- perseverance, preservation, whatever the the case is here that Piper and Sproul are making is essentially a once saved, always saved theology that once you are saved, you will never, ever, ever fall out of God's sanctifying grace. He will preserve you uh, or enable you to persevere until the end. I think Sproul, by the way, likes the term preservation because, well, he says, he says this is why, because it's, it's something that he says is accomplished by God. And that, that is an important point here. This runs all the way through the tulip ecosystem, the tulip garden, let's call it. Um, in the sense that this is this is what we call monergism. So if you think about it, synergism is where you have two or more things that are working together. Um, a lot of the Catholic kind of sacrament or soteriological economy, how we understand that we are saved, is a synergistic one. And, and we say that because um, although God does all of the saving, we don't save ourselves, um, we open the door to the action of the Holy Spirit. Um, that is a synergistic framework. A monergistic framework is one in which God does absolutely everything. There is no synergy. There is no human action. There is no freedom of will in a monergistic framework. And so um, a monergistic framework is one that 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 is the tulip framework. Okay, so let's take total depravity, for example. Because we're totally depraved, we can do nothing good whatsoever, right? The fact that we can do nothing good whatsoever means that if there's anything good that is to happen, it has to come from God. Okay. So now we get to unconditional election. Now you can, you can, I guess, be a TLIP person and hold to universalism in the sense that there will no, there will be no, um, there will be no election necessary because everyone's going to be saved. And then if everyone's going to be saved, I guess you wouldn't hold to limited atonement. So I guess you could be like a TIP, total depravity, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. Just that, that, that God comes in, overpowers everyone with efficacious grace and saves everyone. But if you're not going to hold that everyone's saved, Logically, you have to hold to uh, to a, an unconditional election. So election in the sense that some are saved and some are not, and that's all determined by God. And because you're in a monergistic framework, God's the only one who does the action. So it has to be God who does the election. Um, and then it has to be unconditional because since we can do nothing at all of ourselves and there is no synergy, that election has to be completely unconditional of any works that we do. And then, of course, we get to limited atonement. And so why does that logically follow in the monergistic paradigm? It's because, again, if God is the one doing all the action and only some are saved, then clearly God's uh, the 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 efficacy of God's saving atonement only applies to some. And then irresistible grace. This is very simple as well, because we can't even do anything. We can't even we can't even accept the grace and say yes to the grace um, of our of our own will. We, We don't even have the freedom to do that. It has to be the case that if grace is going to be efficacious at all and take effect in our soul, it's going to be entirely the work of God. And if it's, a, if it's entirely the work of God and not at all of ourselves, then it, it is by definition irresistible, right? So if it's, if it's all his work, not our own, and it's efficacious, then it's irresistible. And then we get to the final one, um, perseverance of the saints. Once saved, always saved. So why, why, is, why does this logically follow? 
Well, again, in the monergistic framework, because God's the one who does all of the saving, right? To say that God elects us unconditionally and says, you're going to go to heaven. And then to say that he, um, he, you know, he enters into us with irresistible grace and we do nothing of our own volition to accept it. We have no freedom of our, of our will to accept it and then to act on it in a synergistic way and grow in sanctifying grace um, through, our, through, our, through the exercise of our will. Then any fall from that grace, any, any falling out, if you will, of sanctifying grace has to then be not a work of our own, but a work of God. And if it's a work of God that we fall out of sanctifying grace, then it's God going back on his promises. Um, and it's actually God, you know, going back on his election that he, that he, um, that he you know, destined you for salvation. So, so that's why logically speaking, perseverance of the saints has to follow from the previous four parts of tulip here. And that's exactly, I think what John Piper's getting at when he says this perseverance is the promise of the new covenant obtained by the blood of Christ and worked in us by God himself. That's the monergism yet not so as to diminish, but only to empower and encourage our vigilance. So again, just to kind of wrap a bow on this here, the perseverance is all God's and it's, it's, uh, it's infallible and it perseveres until the end because indeed God has promised to save us and he can do no other. Um, if we would, if we would claim otherwise, then, then God is an arbitrary and capricious God. And that is not the God of the old or new Testament who is unchanging. Um, so that, so that's the kind of logical sequence that I see going throughout all of tulip here. Um, the problem, I think I mean, there are, there are several problems and we've talked about several of them, Casey, but I think one of the problems is that because it is such a tight logical chain, it makes sense internally but it doesn't doesn't necessarily you know jive with reality. It doesn't necessarily reflect reality as it is. Uh, and it's also the case that if you knock down one of those, then the next you know the rest of them must necessarily fall. But but I think too, as we talk about this, I'm I'm eager to dive into the kind of scriptural support and the Catholic position. I think also you know when I said that this one I think is the weakest scriptural support. It might that might be the case, and and I'm I'm wondering if even Reformed Protestants would acknowledge that or would agree with me on that. Because the, the, the case isn't necessarily scriptural, right? It's, a, it's almost a logical case following from the previous ones that we've talked about um, establishing from scripture. So anyway, I've talked for a long time, Casey. Sorry, that was a uh, bit of a monologue, but I think it was helpful, hopefully at least, to walk through each aspect of TULIP and how we've kind of gotten to where we are today. Um, so do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, if so, I'd love to hear them. If not, we can dive into the scriptural arguments for perseverance of the saints. Yeah, I think you've made a pretty persuasive case I think also thinking about a lot of the proof texts that are used, I do remember finding them uh, especially unconvincing when I was um, sort of like contemplating them uh, almost from the outside as I was, I was thinking about Catholicism. One thing I did want to note, since you did bring it up going through all of them, is uh, R.C. Sproul's new acronym. Um, so just just to uh, go through them all, so right, he, he changes uh, the total depravity to radical depravity. He changes uh, unconditional election to sovereign elect to uh, sovereign election. He changes limited atonement to definite atonement, uh, irresistible grace to effectual grace, and we get we still get to keep the P with uh, preservation of the saints instead of perseverance of the saints. So we get the new acronym RSDEP. Perfect. Which, it really rolls is, off the tongue. <laughs> yeah, RSDEP. It, yeah, I mean it doesn't. It, with tulip too, you know, you get like the synod adored, and you know, Calvinists are Dutch, and you get you know the Dutch kind of infatuation with tulips and the whole economic crisis that they had, right? It was like the first 
like big economic bubble that burst. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, I, I think we're going to have to keep with, um, I think, I think I'm going to have to reject Sproul's, uh, you know, clever, uh, you know, new acronym in favor of the old historic one. But I guess that is sort of like my, that's my Catholicism seeping in. You know, always <laughs> want- yeah. Well, I, I know I've definitely talked with the reformed Protestants who don't love Tulip because they think it's not the best way to capture those doctrines. And I, I'm guessing that's what Sproul is getting at there, but I agree with you. The, uh, the Tulip, uh, the Tulip verbiage is, is nice and tidy. Really, uh, really, it, it, it helps in, in breaking down. I've never forgotten, for example, what anything in Tulip stands for because I remember, oh yeah, Tulip, and it's, it's just, it's right there. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so I'm really, I'm raring to go here with scriptural evidence. All right, let's go. <clears throat> so uh, these are several of the verses that Calvinists most often cite. Again, we're not trying to be comprehensive here. First uh, John 2.19, uh, we read, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they all are not of us. Matthew 15, 8, uh, Jesus says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Uh, also from Matthew seven twenty three, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. couple from Paul, St. Paul, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And finally, one more uh, from John, from his gospel, uh, chapter 10, 27, uh, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. All right. Yeah. So that again, not comprehensive, but that's a, uh, a good summary of at least some of the strongest um, scriptural proof texts that are used. So what's the Catholic response to any and all of those? Okay, sure. So um, again, uh, important to remember what we're doing is we're not, we're not trying to do a battle of proof texts. Um, it's more that we're trying to analyze the Calvinist paradigm on its own term and the Catholic paradigm on its own term, right? So of course we have the same scripture. So of course we have interpretations for these passages as well. So Catholic paradigm, of course, agrees with St. John in his, uh, in his first letter, First uh, John 2.19, right, if people depart from the faith, they are not of the faithful. But that's not necessarily calling into question their conviction and status when they were in the church. Um, moreover, there's no evidence that St. John is saying once they left that they might not repent and return to the church, right? We don't, there's just not enough there um, in that verse to, to get us to um, the conclusions that uh, perseverance of the saints demands. Uh, with uh, John 10, uh, there's a big difference between someone who leaves the faith and being snatched out of God's hands, which is what Jesus says, right? Jesus says that uh, no one will be able to, uh, you know, take my sheep uh, from me. Right. Well, that's that's different than someone willfully leaving of their own uh, their own volition. Um, Matthew seven, perhaps the workers of iniquity were never known by Christ because they were never members of the faithful in the first place. Right. Again, just there's not enough there to to get us to perseverance. Um, And then with Philippians, uh, it's at least in the Catholic paradigm, it's understood this is a pastoral exhortation, not a promise that people following Christ are incapable of falling away. Um, so, for example, look at Philippians 2.12, where St. Paul says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling, which would you know, seem to 
imply that uh, there is, you know, some work and some um, unknown in the Christian's life in regards to their final destiny. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, I think the Philippians one bears repeating. I'll also just add on the the Matthew section when you said, you know, there's not enough there. Perhaps the workers of iniquity were never really known by Christ in the first place. And I think um, that's supported by the text. I mean, it is it's a short passage in this parable where Jesus says, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And these people come in, they want to come to heaven, and they say, you know, didn't we cast out demons in your name, et cetera? And then he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Um, and so it's it's just not evident from the text that those people ever had a, a real and abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, which is what he calls us to. Um, on the Philippians point, though, I, I love what you pointed out with Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. So again, going back to my comment about monergism versus synergism, right? So the the scriptural interpretation or the Catholic, I should say the Catholic interpretation of Philippians chapter two, verse 12, in which, uh, let me, let me just, let me just, let me just read both here from my Bible. So, um, first Philippians chapter one, verse six, uh, let me just actually start verse three. I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy, thankful for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the de- and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And in Philippians chapter two, verse 12, Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, so in the monergistic paradigm, uh, God's doing all the work. In the synergistic paradigm, the reason that Paul is saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling um, is precisely why he says in verse 13, for God is at work in you. So Paul is calling these people to a cooperating uh, action, ultimately a cooperating grace, cooperating with the grace of the Holy Spirit for each of these people. And as far as um, Philippians chapter one, verse six goes, I was interested in hearing what some of the fathers said on this. And Chrysostom, St. John Chrysostom has a wonderful um, set of homilies in which he goes through uh, the book of Philippians. And it's really good. And he actually, uh, as you can expect, he has a really good exposition, exposition of this verse. So again, the verse is being confident of this very thing, or for I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay. So this is St. John Chrysostom's commentary, and it's a little bit dense, but just bear with me here. St. John Chrysostom says, See how he also teaches them to be unassuming. For since he had witnessed a great thing of them that they may not feel as men are apt to do, he presently teaches them to refer both the past and the future to Christ. How? By saying, not being confident that as you that as you began, you will also finish, but what? Instead, he which began a good work in you will perfect it. He did not rob them of the achievement, nor did he call their good deeds solely their own, but primarily of God. For I am confident, says he, that he which began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. That is God will. So let me, let me pause here and just say, this sounds pretty monergistic so far, right? Um, but at the same time, uh, St. John Chrysostom is talking about how um, he, about how the good works or the good deeds of these people are not solely their own, but primarily of God. That's totally consonant with the Catholic paradigm, as you would as you would expect. The the good that we do is certainly primarily of God, because as we talked about in the total depravity section, 
It is only because of the prevenient grace of God operating in our lives that we can do any good at all. So it is indeed primarily of God with that, without God, um, we can do nothing. Um, but we can still use our wills to freely cooperate with that grace. Okay. So let me continue what St. John Chrysostom says. And it is not about yourselves. He implies, but about those descending from you that I feel thus. And indeed it is no small praise that God should work in one. For if he is no respecter of persons, as indeed he is none, but is looking to our purpose when he aids us in good deeds. So there, there again, right? That's not monergistic. He's aiding us in good deeds. It is evident that we are agents in drawing him to us, so that even in this view he did not rob them of their praise. Since if, since if, in his, since if his inworking were indiscriminate, there would have been nothing to hinder but that even heathens and all men might have him working in them. That is, if he moved us like logs and stones and required not our part. So that in saying God will perfect it, this also again is made their praise, who have drawn to them the grace of God, so that he aids them in going beyond human nature. And that calls to mind, Casey, the Catholic idea of grace perfecting nature rather than destroying nature. God comes to us. Um, God calls to action our free wills and the cooperation of uh, our bodies in his grace um, so that he can perfect what we have. And that's indeed the language that St. Paul himself uses here, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, will bring it to perfection at the day of Jesus Christ. And St. John Chrysostom closes out his commentary on this verse by saying, but if God will perfect, then neither shall there be much labor, but it is right to be of good courage for that they shall easily accomplish all as being assisted by him. In other words, there is a synergy there, uh, but the faithfulness of God is what we can count on. And that is why exactly St. Paul can say with confidence, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's a pretty good homily. I wish we had homilies like that from our parish pulpits all the time, Casey. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I've, uh, yeah, there's, uh, I've had some, I've had some good, you know, pastors that have great, you know, homiletic skills and some, uh, leave a little bit to be desired, but yeah, it's yeah. fair. I mean, that's, that's not a knock at all on my pastors <laughs> now. It's really just a, uh, it's in praise of John Chrysostom. It's just a, there's a lot of depth there. I mean, that was all on one verse that I read, so it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so again, I totally take your point, Casey, that this is not a, um, this is not a, he said, he said, she said, let's throw our favorite Bible verses at, um, at the wall and see what sticks, but let's explore the Catholic paradigm a little bit more and just talk about some of the, um, the biblical passages that we point to, um, that the church has used to uh, draw upon for her teaching on the perseverance, um, of the saints or the, the lack thereof. Sure. Okay. So, um, in Hebrews chapter two, uh, the author, maybe St. Paul, we don't know it for sure, warns against uh, drifting away. And uh, Hebrew, the letter in Hebrews uh, also elsewhere cautions Christians to persevere daily, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Um, so that certainly would suggest that there, like you, like you said, Zach, that there's a cooperative uh, dimension to um, our perseverance in, in faith. Um, in Jesus' parable of the sower, alternatively, some seeds sprout partially before being choked by weeds. So, again, uh, taking th uh, that parable at face value would seem to suggest that uh, some people are going to be initially receptive to the gospel and may even have uh, some level of relationship with Christ for a period of time, um, but that the cares of the world will eventually you know, choke away that grace. Alternatively, in the prodigal son, I mean, the whole story of the prodigal son, right, is about a son who falls away from grace before later returning. 
Um, and then uh, some other things from St. Paul explicitly in 1 Corinthians, he tells the church in Corinth that uh, he who thinks he stands should take heed lest he fall. Um, so, and actually, I remember hearing um, Reformed uh, sermons on these kinds of warnings, and the explanation being given is that they're more like rhetorical. They're not actually intended for the audience that they for the for the audience members who are saved, but more just like a pastoral exhortation. Not really that they might actually fall, which I think just vitiates St. Paul's purpose in writing it in the first place. But, yeah, that's strange. Yeah. So uh, also in in First Timothy one, Paul talks about uh, some individuals. I, I'm gonna, I might butcher the first name here: uh, Hymenaeus and also Alexander, who suffered shipwreck concerning their faith, um, and whom Paul has subsequently delivered over to Satan. Which again, I mean, these were people who were, I, I at least fellow Christians, potentially even fellow workers in the gospel, who had fallen away in in some way. Um, and in Galatians chapter five, St. Paul talks about, uh, being fallen from grace. Um, so a, a pretty, uh, substantive list of verses that would provide an alternative to perseverance of the saints. Yeah. I think those are all good and compelling to me. The strongest evidence against the doctrine of perseverance of the saints comes from again, Hebrews, but in chapter six, there's a relatively long discourse in which the writer to the Hebrews, maybe Paul, as you said, um, talks about exactly uh, this instance, it would seem. Um, let me just read an excerpt. Uh, let me start at chapter six, verse four. Um, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they then commit apostasy, since they crucify the Son of God on their own account and hold him up to contempt. For land which has drunk the rain that often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. Its end is to be burned. Okay, so, um, well, and actually, let me, let me just, this is interesting too. Let me just go on. It's not, not directly tied to our conversation, but it's relevant to the tulip discussion. Verse nine, continuing, though we speak thus yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things that belong to salvation for God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love which you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness in realizing the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Right. So this whole, and then actually the, um, the, the next passage here. Uh, is about the certainty of God's promise. So, and, and indeed, the whole idea of perseverance of the saints is built on this idea of the certainty of God's promise. That's exactly what John Piper talked about in the quote that I had there. But this whole passage from Hebrews is the writer to the Hebrews saying, look, if you have tasted the heavenly gifts, if you are if you are in sanctifying grace and then you go commit apostasy and you turn your back on it all, it's impossible to restore you again. Um, in other words, you can fall from grace and the fall from grace is indeed definite. Now, of course, um, you know, that person can always, um, can, can always return to Christ's grace. Um, but, but not, um, you know, but, but you can fall from grace, which is the point there. And then the, the part immediately after the first part that I read, um, in verse 10, um, is about God, you know, not being so unjust as to overlook your work. 
um, and the love with which you do it, right? The, and that would, be, that would be what we call the um, synergistic grace um, or faith working through love. And then the final part of that passage in chapter six is calling people to not be sluggish, you know, to not be uh, indolent and lazy in doing their faith because they are called indeed to be cooperators um, of cooperators with the grace of the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and we can have this hope. So when Paul in first in, in Philippians chapter one, verse six, when Paul says, I'm confident, we can, we can have a, a moral certainty. We can have a confidence um, of sorts in the perseverance of God, because we know that God will not fail, but we can't have that certainty in ourselves. And I think that bears some repeating in the, in the Catholic position. Um, Casey, do you have any thoughts on that, that Hebrews chapter six passage? No, just that I, I think it does reiterate. I, 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 yeah, I'm just I'm trying to even remember as a Calvinist how I would have made sense of this, and I think I, I it would have probably been this idea that this is all sort of like rhetorical exhortations that's not meant for the elect in a explicit sense, but more just sort of like to spur people on to to remain committed. Um, yeah, but even that, I, I, I don't know. In some senses, I think anybody who starts thinking about the logic of that will probably end up experiencing a lot more doubt and confusion than being sort of like pastorally comforted. Yeah, um, that makes sense. Uh, I, I think I'm going to correct myself on something I said where I, I said that obviously like the repentance remains to these people, but I think the the point here that the writer of the Hebrews is making when he says, it, is it, imposs- it is impossible to restore you into repentance? This is in some ways the the unpardonable sin, right? Like, this is like a total rejection of the, um, of the sanctifying grace that Christ offers. But that in some ways makes the Catholic paradigm come through even more strongly, I think here, because this is not the case. This is not an example of someone who is just like walking the walk and talking the talk without really having a relationship, right? This is someone who, as the writer to the Hebrews is saying here, has tasted the heavenly gift has become a partaker of the Holy Spirit, has tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and still, still they commit apostasy. And so badly, in fact, that you know that this might be actually equivalent um, to the passage that you cited in 1 Timothy when Paul delivers them to Satan. This was, this, I've heard some commentaries on the unpardonable sin, which is basically just a, a, a total hardening of heart, a total um, and, and basically final rejection of the grace that Christ offers. But, but you know, if that can happen... To even even someone who is a partaker of the Holy Spirit and has, has tasted the heavenly gift and the powers of the age to come and all of that, if that can happen to someone like that, then how much more can can someone you know have a, a momentary lapse in sanctifying grace, a, a momentary turn from Christ, and then need to be restored to Christ to that state of sanctifying grace? Um, does that all make sense? Did I explain that well, Casey? Uh, yeah, I think you did an excellent job. Um, okay, I just wanted to correct myself on that. Um, that no. I- yeah, I mean, the the whole topic of the unforgivable sin is a very complicated one in of itself. So we don't want to necessarily uh, diverge too much on that. Yeah, but yeah I've done a lot of different opinions about what exactly that means. Yeah, fair <clears throat> enough. Um, well, let's let's just dive in a little bit more about the Catholic position. I'll kind of walk through here, and then I want to ask you your final thoughts and sort of some some practical stuff. So briefly, I'll just I'll say a few things here. So first, in the Catholic paradigm, um, there is perseverance of the saints. Uh, we can persevere um, with the help of God, but that perseverance is not something that just happens to us. Um, we cannot persevere without the special help of God, but we can persevere 
with the special help of God. And that perseverance requires the requires our active cooperation. That's the synergy that we're talking about. All right, which is not to say that God gets us 90% of the way to salvation and we get ourselves the, the, the other 10%, right? But but again, go, going back to the analogy of the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of our hearts, right? God gives us a free will uh, to accept or reject his graces. And we can keep our hearts shut and not be saved or we can open our hearts and be saved, right? And so, so you know, in sort of framing it with that analogy, if we are saved, it's all of the work of God. If we are not saved, it's the work of ourselves in not cooperating with the sanctifying grace of God, right? So that that's how the um, that's how we are we we're not saving ourselves at all. So there is perseverance in the sense that you know perseverance just means, and this is you know Thomas Aquinas he, he distinguished three meanings of the the word perseverance, and one of those is just making it all the way to the end, right? And so we believe in perseverance of the saints very obviously in the sense that obviously the saints made it all the way to the end. Um, they died in the hope and friendship and sanctifying grace of God. So in that sense, we hold the perseverance of the saints, but we do not hold that, you know, once saved, always saved that once you have tasted the heavenly gifts, you are going to heaven, sealed, signed and delivered, right? That is not the Catholic paradigm. The Catholic paradigm is that, that grace requires, right? Just look at the epistle of James faith without works is dead. Faith requires active works, uh, uh, faith working through love uh, in a synergistic way, the the Greek there, I think, in the working through love is, I believe, um, synergoi, or I'm probably butchering the pronunciation, but the idea is it's the same root that we have in our in our modern synergy, faith working through love. We cooperate with the grace of Christ. That leads us, ultimately, when we persevere, right? When we when we keep cooperating with the sanctifying grace of God, we we persevere to the end. Okay. So, but with that said, as I've already mentioned, I don't want to beat this horse too much. The Christian can fall away. Um, Luther actually held to this belief. It was, um, uh, he, he, he built on Augustine who said that man is regenerated at baptism, but after that can still fall away. Um, Luther has a commentary on second Peter two, where he says by baptism, they have thrown off unbelief and have been washed from their polluted life and have entered upon a pure life of faith and love while they fall off from it again to unbelief and their own works and defile themselves again in dirt. So he's actually talking about someone who has been regenerated, someone who has been regenerated by baptism and indeed then falls again. Calvin came along and said, no, that's wrong. Uh, once saved, always saved. And that's, that's because of the sort of driving again, monergistic logic, um, that pushes to that. Um, uh, Calvin actually said, no one, this was on a commentary on first John, no one born of God commits sin for God's nature abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. So that is a, uh, that's a very different teaching than, um, the Catholic teaching. Okay, now the final thing I'll say on this, and then Casey, I'm going to ask you about some um, some you know reasons why this matters. I interrupt you really quickly because I just realized something. I remember talking this is years ago when I was still Presbyterian, and um, I, we were talking about the Monergism website, which maybe you have access to. I've seen it, either, yeah, yeah, either preparing for this or before. Massive reformed resource for articles, even like entire books that have been put up there. I, I used it a lot when I was um, in Reformed Seminary. And I remember somebody said, why would they name it monergism? It sounds like such like an obscure doctrine in the Reformed tradition. And I think doing this podcast series has helped me to understand how monergism really is like at the core of so much of this. I mean, it kind of like, like, like to use your analogy of like the, the tulip garden. I mean, it's sort of like, it's like the water. It's like watering the entire garden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So anyway, sorry, please go on ahead with uh, Trent. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. So the, the only other thing I was going to say on this is that, you know, in the, as in my research, what I found is that when the church has engaged in this dialogue about the assurance of salvation, the key concern of the church 
has not been about the um, about the perseverance per se, right? Because again, perseverance happens. Perseverance means that the saint has has cooperated to the end. That's a good thing and a noble thing. The concern of the church has been with um, the assurance of salvation, right? Because in Calvin's teaching, if you're saved, you know, boom, done, you're going to heaven. And the church has said, um, hold on, you know, no one, no one should doubt the mercy of God, the steadfastness of God, the faithfulness of God, but everyone needs to be vigilant that we're always following God and cooperating with his grace. So for example, look at Trent, which obviously was responding to uh, the reformers and some of these ideas and assurance of salvation was one that came up. Now, now look, I'll say this too, though. Um, I just, I want to be fair here. You know, there, there is in its history and you'll find a lot of this now too, you know, people in the church and, and clerics in the church have even taught this. People have believed that, that salvation is a matter of doing the, you know, uh, putting, putting coins in the coffer, right. Or, um, that if they simply fulfill their obligation to go to mass, um, if they say the rosary enough, et cetera, then they will be saved. Now, all of those things, can be um, can be acts that are cooperative with the grace of Christ, um, but they are uh, they're also not like constitutive entirely of salvation, right? And so, the church has definitely um, had moments where this has been more more severe and less severe, but moments in history where people have have felt that Catholicism did teach a works righteousness. It doesn't. It never has. But some of the uh, liturgical and theological and moral abuses of the church have contributed to those ideas. And so that's what the reformers originally were pushing back against. And that's why the assurance of salvation idea came around, right? That, look, this, you know, salvation is not of yourselves. You don't save yourselves. You know, you praying the rosary five times a day does not earn you salvation. You giving me money to build this cathedral does not earn you salvation. But rather, Christ gives you gives you your salvation. And that's what you can hang your hat on, right? So that's a that's a good impulse, I think. Uh, but the church also needed to push back on that. And it did so in the council of Trent chapter six, it says for even as no pious person ought to doubt of the mercy of God, of the merit of Christ and of the virtue and efficacy of the sacraments. Even so each one, when he regards himself and his own weakness and indisposition may have fear and apprehension touching his own grace, seeing that no one can know with a certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error that he has obtained the grace of God. So what it's saying there is God is steadfast. We should always pr- place complete confidence in the mercy of God, the merit of Christ, the virtue and efficacy of the sacraments, etc. But what we what we need to always have is a healthy fear and apprehension um, that drives us to uh, cooperate with the grace of God. And then the uh, Canon 16 on justification from Trent. If anyone says that he will for certain of an absolute and infallible certainty have that great gift of perseverance unto the end, Unless he has learned this by special revelation, let him be anathema. So the special revelation there would be, you know, a, uh, having a a, a vision uh, in which Christ appears to you and and promises you salvation at the end. And this has happened to several mystics, etc. And that you know those are church approved apparitions and things like that. But the idea here is um, we always have to persevere to the end. And so I, I I actually like the term perseverance rather than preservation. So I know Sproul likes preservation. I like perseverance, Casey. Because it reminds me that if I if I'm going to be a saint, I need to persevere. Right? It's it can be hard to follow Christ. It can be hard to cooperate with the grace of Christ. It can be hard to tame my will and make it Christ's and follow Him. But I have to persevere to make it happen. So so I like the term, uh, but obviously the teaching in Reformed Protestant theology is not consistent and consonant with Catholic teaching.
Yeah, and actually, when you were uh, discussing um, this idea that even within the Catholic tradition, um, people can abuse a lot of the uh, rightly understood meritorious acts of salvation, right? Like going to Mass, receiving the Eucharist, praying right. the Rosary. I think that there is a way that they can be abused um, in sort of like a semi-Pelagian or Pelagian way, where it's just like the act in and of itself um, separated from true faith in Christ um, can, you know, can actually, you know, it, it can do nothing or even be harmful. And I think there's an, there's an analogical connection to the Old Testament here. I know, you know, this is also something that's widely debated in the Reformed tradition, how much of the Old Testament can we, can we look at and see as in some way present within the church? But, uh, you know, for those who are at least willing to hear the argument and do, and does do view some sort of um, continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament, I think there is a perfect example of this. Um, I was thinking of Psalm 50, where um, God says to the people of Israel, I do not reprove you for your sacrifices. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will accept no bull from your house, nor he goat from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air, and all that moves in the field is mine. Uh, then he goes on to say, you know, like, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and pay your vows to the Most High, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. Right? So even here, we, we see the God uh, of the people of Israel saying, you know, look, I see that you're doing all of these acts that you think in and of themselves are great, but if this is done separated from true faith in me and love for me, then they're, they're not accomplishing what you think they are. Yeah. Very well said. And uh, I'm glad that you added that. I think you explained it better than, than I did. So thanks for that. But let's, let's talk now as we wrap up here, Casey, let's talk about why this matters. We've wrapped up every episode so far on sort of the practical implications of these differences and the reformed Protestant paradigm, especially. So what do you think? What are some reasons why we should care and some some things, some effects this has in perhaps evangelization or in church governance or something like that? Sure. So I think the first thing to note, we, we should note positively that uh, similar to what we talked about in our conversation on unconditional election, uh, irresistible grace was um, offered forward by Calvin and other early reformers as a powerful pastoral tool, right? All of us struggle with sin. We fear that our sins are going to damage, if not sever, our relationship with God. So to tell the struggling Christian, especially one who um, is, uh, you, know, uh, you know, focusing more on very small sins than is appropriate, um, that, you know, God's gracious overtures are incapable of being resisted and that the Christian cannot fall away. That seems like a message of tremendous solace, right? That no matter how much we screw up, God loves us and will complete the work of salvation in us, right? And so there's a grain of truth to that, right? And this idea that, yeah, no matter how much we screw up, God does love us and offer this uh, and continue to offer out grace to us. But there's another side to the salvific coin, right? So if God's grace cannot be resisted, um, and I possess some subjective level of assurance that I'm one of the elect, then the effects of sin are also less dramatic, right? So no matter how much I sin, no matter the content or the number of my sins, God's grace on the elect can't be resisted. So yes, I, I as a Calvinist know that sin's evil. I know that it can damage my relationship with Christ. There may be negative effects on my life or the lives of those around me, but my sins don't fundamentally alter my status as one of the elect. And if that's the case, 
there's not really a, a deadly drama to my personal decisions because I can't stop God from bringing me to heaven. So like irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints kind of fosters a, a certain level of fatalism regarding our actions that, you know, in the grand scheme of salvation history, do they really matter? Um, and, and that's something that the Reformed tradition has consistently struggled with. Yeah, and I wonder, too, both of those points. So, um, I mean, I think they're very well made. The first one, right, that this is, a, this is an appealing message to people that no matter what you've done, God loves you. That's a true message, right? That that is that is what you know. Some of the greatest saints in the Catholic Church were were horrible before they became Christians and committed unspeakable sins. Uh, Saint Paul himself was killing Christians and calls himself you know chief among sinners. So the message to someone that look, no matter what you've done in your past, no matter how heinous your previous sins, God loves you and God wants to enter into your heart and renew your life. That's an amazingly powerful message. I think, you know, given what we talked about with unconditional election, right, that message is more powerful actually in the Catholic paradigm than in the Calvinist or Reformed Protestant one, because in the latter, it's look, God might love you (laughs) or uh, God might want you to be saved. And so you should try to accept, right? Um, And and so, so we as Catholics hold that God actually wills all men to be saved, truly, right? Uh, And, and as a Reformed Protestant who holds to unconditional election, um, that's not the case. So, uh, so absolutely a true message. Uh, I actually think perhaps, um, counterintuitively it's stronger in the Catholic side. Now, with that said, with, with what you and I were talking about, we have to be careful to not then follow that up with, um, you know, giving any sort of semi-Pelagian impression about how you actually are saved, right? It's important to, to, um, to cooperate with the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's especially important to do it in the ways that the church tells you to do it. Um, but that in no way diminishes the mercy of Christ, his infinite love and mercy, or his ardent desire, you know, the way in which his sacred heart burns with passion for us. Um, and so, yeah, and I also, I like your second point too, about how just, you know, again, like going back to unconditional election, uh, limited atonement, right? If you're one of the elect, you can sin. And it's just, it's not as big of a deal because it doesn't have, um, it doesn't have the sort of metaphysical permanence that it has in the Catholic paradigm. I mean, you, you, as a Catholic, you can, you can, you commit a mortal sin and you cut yourself off from the sanctifying grace of Christ and you need to be restored by Christ to that sanctifying grace, right? Um, the ordinary means of that is confession, uh, or I should say the sacrament of penance. Um, but the, but you know, you can also get it directly from Christ as well. If you can't, can't make it to, um, the sacrament of penance in the appropriate time, et cetera. But the, but the point is, right. The point is that, Sin has objective realities in the life of the soul. Um, it cuts off what Frank Sheed termed the supernatural life. And that's really important to remember. And that's simply not the case in the Reformed Protestant or Calvinist paradigm. Yes, that's right. And actually, I was so um, just I was remembering one thing I wanted to say regarding um, the idea that this doctrine gives solace scrupulosity. That's the word I was looking for. Right. And this is central to Luther's. Um, coming to this, I, a lot of the Reformation doctrines in the first place, right? Like sola fide is this, he was so overscrupulous, right? Like terrified that any little sin he had committed might in some way be mortal and, and sever him from God, right? So for any Christian who's struggling with scrupulosity, um, perseverance of the saints provides a, a, a sense of a, a pastoral comfort, um, if that makes sense. No, yeah, definitely. 
Um, yeah. Any other practical implications we need to think through here before we wrap it up? Yeah, sure. So uh, let's talk about mortal and venial sins, right? So in the Catholic paradigm, uh, we draw a distinction between mortal and venial sins. Mortal sins, uh, if done with full knowledge and full consent, um, effectively kill grace in the soul, which means they fundamentally sever one's relationship to God. So one would then obtain forgiveness, like you talked about, Zach, which is the, or- the ordinary means of which is found in uh, the sacrament of confession in order to be restored to grace uh, and, and full, rela- full communion with God. So venial sins are lesser matter and don't kill grace in the soul. And the church draws its teaching from this, from such scripture passages as uh, 1 John 5, 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not mortal. And lists of mortal sins are found in places like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Galatians 5, 19 to 21, and Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. Um, so to give a, a, a practical example here of the, how this distinction can work itself out or not work itself out in the Reformed tradition, I once listened to a talk at a prominent PCA church uh, in, my, in my native state of Virginia, uh, where the speaker acknowledged that, yes, masturbation is a sin. But then under circum- circumstances, a husband being far away from his wife for a long time, it's acceptable. Um, so in the Catholic paradigm, that kind of thinking is wrong and dangerous because basically excuses sin. And in the case of something like masturbation, that's the precise kind of sin that kills grace in the soul uh, because of just because of the nature of that sin. Uh, so this has ser- serious spiritual ramifications, namely loss of communion with God. Um, but it also it, it fosters a Christian paradigm where sin is downplayed um, and maybe even begrudgingly accepted under these kinds of uh, you know situations like you know, being far away from your family. Yeah, I think that's right. And anecdotally, um, you know, Reformed Protestants who I know, and I know many of them, uh, many of them are wonderful people. The their theology tends to de-emphasize sin and um, emphasize instead the sovereignty and grace of God. And again, in the monergistic framework, it makes sense, right? Because God is the one who saves us. We owe him everything. That is, that is by the way, true in the Catholic paradigm as well. Um, but there's, you know, in the, in the monergistic framework, there's nothing at all that we can do to cut ourselves off from God, right? If once saved, always saved, truly, then you could go do the, the worst things imaginable, et cetera, and you would not be cut off from the grace of God. In our paradigm, that's just not true. And so, you know, in a, in a sense, you have to emphasize sin because sin has real effects. It has real ramifications. And those ramifications are not simply, you know, how happy you'll be in this life or how satisfied you'll be or whether or not you'll feel like you really have a flourishing life. Those ramifications are actually eternal. And whether or not we we commit mortal sin can have effects on, on where our eternal destiny is. Right. Yeah. And that gets to my last point. Um, which is another anecdote. So uh, there was a woman's book club that was done at uh, my old uh, Presbyterian church in Virginia. And I, I found it very amusing whenever they would announce the next book they were going to read. Um, with, with the exception of Mary Lynn Robinson's Gilead, they were all Catholic authors. Um, and uh, one of the young women who participated in that study, she admitted to me, Catholics write better fiction. And that kind of got me, th- you know, at the time. It's so true. Kinda, so true. At the time I was kind of like, well, who cares? Like we have, we have the truth. They can have fiction. I don't care. Um, but you know, thinking back on that, okay, why, why is it that Catholics would write better fiction? I would submit, I think it's because in the Catholic paradigm, drama is more dramatic and true to life. There's more on the line when even people who are trying to be faithful Catholics are presented with choices that can endanger their souls, right? So one of uh, my favorite books, The Power and the Glory by uh, Catholic convert Graham Greene, there's uh, this whiskey priest in Mexico. He has to make a choice. Is he going to be faithful 
to his vocation as a priest? Or is he going to cowardly submit to the atheist Mexican authorities of the 1930s? So the Calvinist paradigm may give a level of subjective comfort, but the Catholic paradigm is more true to life because we are presented with spiritually dangerous choices. Like, for example, you know, in a marriage that has lost its luster, are we going to succumb to the temptation of an extramarital affair? Um, when we're presented with an opportunity to gain a material advantage, you know, at, at work or something or somewhere else, even if it qualifies as theft, are we going to retain our virtue? Um, when witnessing a loved one who's suffering from, ser- from some terrible, deadly illness and the medical bills start racking up, uh, are we going to have the courage to resist the temptation to contemplate euthanasia options? Um, in the Calvinist paradigm, choosing wrongly in any of those examples doesn't fundamentally alter one's status before God. Uh, if you're the elect, then, not, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it's sin, but it doesn't have any eternal consequences. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, I have not read The Power and the Glory, but Sally has. She really liked it. I think maybe we should do a podcast episode. I should read it, and then we should do a podcast discussion. I didn't realize it was one of one of your favorite books. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I love green in general. But. Well, so I completely agree with your point about fiction. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we haven't really talked about the the incarnational sacramental realities of the faith. Um, and that's not really what the tulip discussion is about, but it's certainly related, um, especially because of the, these, these questions about the means of grace and how the sanctifying grace comes to the soul. And that is through the sacraments, et cetera. Um, but one of my favorite authors, Flannery O'Connor, just the, the richness of the sacraments and the incarnational reality of our faith just comes through so strongly. And I think I, I agree with you. It, it helps helps Catholic writers write better fiction because the stakes are high because our lives here have intrinsic meaning because they have eternal meaning. Um, you know, I like to talk about how like what we do here um, echoes for eternity. It's not original. I don't know where I first heard that, um, but that's, that's the reality, right? And so the choices that we make here uh, do have ramifications for forever. And we are not the, we are not the, um, you know, witting or unwitting pawns of a God who acts monergistically. Um, we are the loved creations, the beloved, I would even say, creations of a God who is indeed all-powerful, but who respects our freedom of will and wants us to love him back. And so he will stand at the door and knock and knock and knock all through our lives, all the way to the very last beat of our heart, but he won't uh, enter uh, without us opening the door. And once he does, he enables us with sanctifying grace to cooperate with this grace. And he wants us to do that. He wants us to draw ever closer and closer to him because what is cooperating with his grace other than just drawing closer to Jesus? And that's what we're called to do in the Catholic paradigm. I mean, one thing that we haven't said, Casey, but I think you were hinting at it there in your last point is just that the Catholic, the Catholic perspective on soteriology, this idea of how we are saved, of our salvation, is ultimately, to me, a much more beautiful one than the sort of logical, sterile, monergistic framework of total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. I, I think in, in our framework, our soteriological framework, is, is really one big metadrama uh, it's a it's a pursuit between the lover and the beloved, um, and it's one in which we have choices to make, and we can respond, 
and the depth to which we can know our lover, the depth to which we can become intimately acquainted with Jesus Christ and the triune God is to some degree related to how much work we're willing to put in, to how much we're willing to cooperate with the sanctifying grace of Christ. Um, and I think that's a really beautiful thing to think about um, rather than just viewing us as, as, as pawns in a, in a sort of monergistic framework. So um, that's my, that's my thoughts. And I think your thoughts as well, Casey on perseverance of the saints and more broadly, the whole tulip framework. Um, if you have any, if you have any further thoughts, Casey, I'd love to hear them, but we can wrap it up here. Otherwise. No, I think the way that I, th- I think your final thoughts were a fantastic way to end the entire series. Um, and I, I pray that it's useful both for again, Protestant listeners. Yeah, I hope so as well. And pray so as well. Uh, thanks so much for listening through all of these episodes. Hopefully it was, um, formative and educational and helpful. I know I've learned a ton through this and uh, I, I'm looking forward to learning more uh, to our Catholic listeners. If you have questions about this or you want us to dig deeper into something or do a special episode on a question that you have, please, by all means, reach out. I'm, I'm doing this for listeners. So if you have things that you want to hear and want to learn more about, please reach out. Zach, Z-A-C at creedalcatholic.com. Um, to non-Catholic listeners, if you want to know more about the Catholic faith, please also reach out to me. I'd be happy to send you some more resources um, point in the direction of some people who can be helpful. Um, and, and maybe to non-Catholic listeners who just think that, that we got something wrong in our summation of reformed Protestant theology, I'd be happy to have a dialogue with you as well. Cause I want to learn more. And I, we, we were, we were careful to do this and hopefully we did well, but we, we want to obviously represent, uh, the best, uh, opposing arguments and, and, and accurately and fairly represent the position. So we gave the disclaimer Casey did at the beginning of this whole series, right? That, that there's a lot of division even within Reformed Protestantism and not everyone's going to have the right take on on Tulip or they're going to agree on the, the takes on the various aspects of Tulip. So we tried to give kind of a breath with Piper and Sproul and some of the Reformed confessions, et cetera, and some other thinkers here and there. Um, but if you think that we've done, we've done grievous uh, misre- misrepresentation on a certain issue, I would love to um, to talk about that and uh, to make it right if I'm, if I'm wrong. So reach out as well, Zach at CredoCatholic.com. Uh, Casey, this has been quite an undertaking, but I really appreciate all the time that you've put into it with me, uh, all the recordings that we've done, including one that we had to do do twice. So uh, thank you for bearing with me through all that. I look forward to bringing you back on the show sometime soon. The only other thing I'll offer to listeners, if you want to get in touch specifically with Casey, uh, please reach out to me and I will, I'll put you in touch with him and, and you can pick his brain as well. So once again, Zach, Z-A-C at CredoCatholic.com. Thanks so much for listening. Please pray for uh, the unity of the church. Please pray for those who are outside of the Catholic Church. Uh, Ultimately, um, it is up to the Holy Spirit to move people the way he does. Um, And so we we can pray and always rely on the constant action of the Holy Spirit in the lives of all Christians. Um, So please pray to the end. Please pray for the Creedal Catholic Ministry. And until next week, God bless you.